Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. It is Tuesday, the uh, 4th of May, uh, 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern. Today, we're going to do a recap of our session on psoriatic arthritis. I'm here with Dr. Artie Cavanaugh. Hey, Artie. Hey, Jack. Uh, glad to everyone who's here with us tonight during this uh, very festive time of year, of course, because uh, Tomorrow is Cinco de Mayo, and of course, that makes this Star Wars Day. How did you get Star Wars Day out of the day before of Cinco de Mayo? May the 4th. <laughs> May the 4th be with you. Mm -hmm. Part of the stand-up. Really, I mean, you need a new act. Tip your waitress. Have the chicken. <laughs> All right, so this was um, a, a really popular session at our Room Now Live meeting uh, in March. Marty, what did you like about this particular session? We got really three great speakers, but what did you like about this session on psoriatic disease? Well, I think one of the things that we did is to charge the speakers with packing an awful lot of information into a very short period of time. And psoriatic arthritis is, is really, uh, it's just exploded with uh, information, not only about new therapies, which all of us like and which Eric Ruderman is going to talk to us about, but also about the kind of basics about the disease, the epidemiology, and Alexis Ogdi is going to talk to us about that. And then uh, finally, uh, since this is mostly a rheumatology audience, uh, about skin psoriasis. I think we've all gotten much, much better about assessing the skin in patients with psoriasis, but we have Melody Young, who's going to really take us to some finer points of that from a very practical clinical standpoint. So uh, really a ton of information here in the session, and we're going to go over that tonight. So with that being said, we're going to begin with our first speaker, Dr. Eric Ruderman from Northwestern. Eric's going to talk about advancing treatment in psoriatic arthritis. We're going to drop in on him as he talks about IL-17 inhibition. Let's uh, take away Eric. Okay. Next step down the line in that whole sort of TH17, IL-17 pathway is IL-17. And it turns out inhibition of IL-17 um, has been very successful, both for the dermatologists at managing the skin disease and for us at managing the, the rheumatologic disease. And I'm not going to worry about having you sort of look at all the details on this. Suffice it to say, if you look at the graphs on the left, this is with secukinumab, Either of the two higher doses of secukinumab, either 150 milligrams every four weeks or 30 milligrams every four, or 300 milligrams every four weeks, gives you the kind of clinical joint response at an ACR20 or an ACR50 response level that we are used to seeing with TNF inhibitors in psoriatic arthritis. Um, when this drug came out for dermatologists, they had some of the same data. They almost always used 300 milligrams instead of 150 milligrams. Rheumatologists, I don't know whether we're more cautious by nature or what was the story, but a lot of patients ended up on 150 from the beginning, and I'm not sure there's any value to that because the 300 milligram dose is quite effective and there's no safety differential between the two. And then the other IL-17 inhibitor that we have is ixekizumab, and this is one of the pivotal studies with ixekizumab. Again, not worried about all the details in the data, except just to point out that at a couple of different um, dose options, um, either given every two weeks or every four weeks, which is really the commercial dose that we're using now, 
the response rates were quite good, as you see there over on the left. And again, in that same level of response that we were used to seeing with TNF inhibitors. And then again, just like with secukinumab and frankly with ustekinumab for the dermatologist, the skin response is really good. So PASI 75 is a 75% improvement in their composite skin index. That's the, that's the base, that's the benchmark that they have to achieve to get FDA approval for a drug in psoriasis. They have a little higher bar than we have, so they need to achieve 75% approval as opposed to 20% improvement as we see with an ACR20. Um, but you can see the numbers and, and pretty dramatic. And in particular, Look at these numbers here, PASI 100. What's a PASI 100? It means their, their skin disease is all better. There's no psoriasis, 50% of the patients. So these drugs, these IL-17 inhibitors, very effective for skin disease and comparable for joint disease, okay? Couple of cautionary notes, um, something to just be aware of. It doesn't change what you do, but IL-17 turns out to be important in how we handle candidal infections. And so in every single trial with an IL-17 inhibitor, handful of patients with thrush, with vaginal candidiasis, occasional esophageal candidiasis, no systemic disease, and most of it was fairly easily managed um, without stopping the underlying drug, which is something to be aware of as you're using this drug in your patients. And then the inflammatory bowel disease has been an unresolved issue. And this all stems from uh, so an early trial of secukinumab in Crohn's disease, in which there was at least a hint that perhaps the patients who were treated did worse than the placebo patients, at least by one measure, measure of response. Now, the dermatologist, I'm sorry, the gastroenterologists say that wasn't the best measure of response. They're not convinced that that was real. Um, and we just don't know. And so we've seen patients who've developed inflammatory bowel disease while on IL-17 inhibitors. We've seen patients whose inflammatory bowel disease has gotten worse. But it's complicated by the fact that there's a genetic link here, and our patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis get IBD. And it's really difficult to know. And so I think that where we've landed on this is that if you have a patient, certainly if you have a patient who has had recently active inflammatory bowel disease, I would be pretty hesitant just because of the noise that's out there about um, this pathway. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily worry if a patient said, I have a spouse, a, a sibling, or parent with IBD, because genetically that's what you expect to see in this space in our patients with, with spinal arthritis and, and psoriatic arthritis in general. Okay, and then the next biologic step up, if you will, for the dermatologist has been the IL-23 inhibitors. And I, and I was intrigued um, to hear Clay say, you know, they're going right to biologics because it's easy to get them approved. I, I don't know, I mean, I think the dermatologists live in a different land than we do as rheumatologists because it's really hard. And, and it's interesting, even in the same location, I hear from our dermatologists in Chicago, it's a heck of a lot easier for them to get a biologic approved for some reason than it is for us. And I have no idea where that's coming from. Um, but they have really jumped in feet first into the IL-23 inhibitors. These are drugs that target not that P40 subunit that also picks up IL-12, but the P19 subunit of the IL-23 molecule, which is unique and specific to interleukin-23. And so if you have an antibody that's targeted against that P19 subunit, then it's an antibody that only blocks 
interleukin-23 signaling and doesn't touch IL-12. And from a skin perspective, these are the agents that have given them the best response by far of any of the biologics they've been using in, in psoriasis. And the dermatologists for people with bad skin disease have really moved into these. And the other advantage has been the infrequency of dosing. Every two months or every three months, depending on the drug, the very low risk of toxicity. And it seems, although we don't have really great data, but it seems that as we've moved from TNF inhibitors to IL-17 inhibitors to IL-23 inhibitors, that the risk of serious infection has gone down meaningfully um, with each um, improvement, at least in terms of managing the skin disease. Now, it's a little complicated in the derm space because their patients don't get the number of serious infections that our patients with inflammatory arthritis get. Um, but still, they've really sort of moved into this space. And we have our first drug. And so gazelcomab approved last year for psoriatic arthritis based on two studies that I'll show you here, DISCOVER-1 and then DISCOVER-2. So these are um, patients who were treated with gazelcomab at one of two doses, and the um, yellow line there is the uh, commercial dose. That's the dose that had previously been approved for psoriasis. So it's every eight weeks, single injection, sub-Q injection every eight weeks, 100 milligrams. And you see the response rates compared to placebo, similar to what we've seen with any of the other biologics. And when you look at the skin response, again, pretty dramatic skin response. So you're talking about 75 to 85% of patients achieving that 75% improvement in skin disease, which is kind of the benchmark for psoriasis. The other interesting thing um, with this drug was that it seemed to work both in TNF-exposed patients and those who weren't. And this was the data from that study. So that study had about up to 40% of patients who'd seen a TNF before. I don't think it was quite 40% at the end of the trial, but it was somewhere in the high 30s. And when they broke them down to patients who'd previously seen or not seen a TNF, response was the same. Different than what had been seen previously with ustekinumab. Remember that IL-12-23 um, targeting antibody. Um, so it, it gives us an option for those patients who've been on a TNF. This drug seems to work um, equally as well as those who haven't. Coming down after that are other drugs. Um, Rizinkizumab. This caught a lot of attention. This is another IL-23 specific inhibitor. Um, and this got a lot of attention for the phase two study. If you look at the data on the right, I'll call out the very light pink bars, okay? The dermatology dose for psoriasis is 150 milligrams um, every three months after a loading dose. So they get one and then at a month and then a loading dose every three months. The light pink bars, 75 milligrams once. And they still got a response that was significantly better than placebo for skin response and at least appeared to be pretty significant for joint response. All right. So there were a lot of um, hope. There was a lot of hope about this drug and where this is going to pan out. Um, they've now gone into phase three. Um, this is data straight out of a press release because it hasn't been published even in abstract, hasn't been presented even in abstract form. But out of the press release, it's not as impressive as we might have hoped. So they have two concurrent phase three trials going on 
Keepsake 1 and Keepsake 2, don't even ask me what those acronyms stand for, but they're pretty good. Um, and if you look at the response relative to placebo, the ACR20 response, um, not bad at 57%, but the placebo response 34%. So the differential isn't tremendous. So these, this didn't turn out to be quite as exciting and as, as effective as we might have hoped. We'll have to see. We haven't seen the full data set from this. It does look like it worked pretty well for the um, skin disease because you see 50 plus percent um, PASI 90 response, 90 percent improvement with very little placebo response. So it is pretty good for skin disease. So we'll see where it is, where it gets to. There's a third uh, IL-23 inhibitor that the dermatologists are using called tildrakizumab, which also look good in phase two. We don't have any phase three data yet in psoriatic arthritis. But I think that these drugs will come into play um, as we move forward. And, and with that, actually, I want to get into our first um, question. Artie, you're in charge of the iPad, I guess. Um, so you have a 42-year-old uh, patient um, with psoriatic arthritis, bad psoriasis. She's been on methotrexate, isn't doing well. She's got tendinitis, a swollen wrist, and bad foot pain. But her skin disease is her biggest problem. What would you recommend next? All right, so we have the, the results. is just a little bit of wobble. IL-17 <laughs> is in the lead. IL-23 is catching up. Here comes TNF and heaven around the corner. Uh, it looks like 52% IL-17, 26% 23 19% TNF inhibitor, only 3% of jack in it. Yeah. I actually think that either of those first two are reasonable options. I mean, I think if you have a patient with skin disease, it's really driving a lot of your decision making. It makes a ton of sense to use either an IL-17 or an IL-23 inhibitor. And I think right now, because of the clinical experience that we have with an IL-17 inhibitors, that's probably a more sure bet than an IL-23 inhibitor, is at least in terms of managing her joint disease. I think it wouldn't be wrong to use an IL-23, um, but I think you've got either option and, and, and nobody would fault you either way. Um, but I'm not surprised that most people, given our experience, would have gone with an IL-17 inhibitor. Okay. So, speaking of that, how do we know and how do we make these comparisons? Well. Finally, we have a couple of head-to-head -head trials that help us a little bit in this space. Um, here's the Spirit head-to-head, H2H, and this is Ixikizumab versus Adalimumab, okay? Couple of caveats to this trial. This is an open-label trial. The assessors were blinded, but patients knew they were getting Adalimumab or Ixikizumab. Um, they were randomized one-to-one. -one. Some were on background methotrexate. They were not required to be, but about half of the patients in both arms, which is kind of what you see in a psoriatic arthritis trial. The primary endpoint was a primary endpoint that had not been used before, nor validated before, frankly. Um, and it was patients had to improve both skin and joints. So the primary endpoint was 50% improvement in skin disease, in joint disease is measured by an ACR 50 and 100% resolution of skin disease as measured by a PASI 100. And you can see, if you look at that primary endpoint, that ixikizumab was superior to adalimumab in this study. When you break it down to joints versus skin, it's not surprising. The joint response was about the same 
it was the skin response that really drove that differential. And that's not surprising at all, as we know that the IL-17 inhibitors do a better job of controlling the skin disease um, than the TNF inhibitors. The other head-to-head -head that we now have is a SUCCEED trial. This is secukinumab versus adalimumab. This was a blinded study, and they used the ACR20 response as their primary endpoint. So they did not look at a primary endpoint that was skin and joints, but just the joints. And they actually powered this study hoping to show that, sec that secukinumab was actually more effective than adalimumab for joint disease. And they didn't show it. Here's the primary endpoint and they didn't quite achieve statistical significance. Interestingly, they used a statistical analysis that didn't achieve significance. Had they used a more traditional analysis that is used in most of the trials we see, which is a non-responder imputation, they actually would have seen a slight difference between secukinumab and adalimumab in favor of the secukinumab. Skin disease responded much better to secukinumab in this study. Um, than to adalimumab. So it ended up showing a lot of the same stuff that the exikizumab trial showed, which is that fairly equivalent for joint disease, but superiority for skin disease with IL-17 inhibitors, which harkens back to that patient we just saw. All right, one other issue that comes up. Psoriatic arthritis is associated with axial disease, okay? If you go way back to the Mullen-Wright criteria, like 5% of people had primarily axial disease. But if you look at the numbers from cohorts that are out there now, probably 40% of people with psoriatic arthritis have some degree of inflammatory spine involvement. So now you've got your 42-year-old patient who has severe back pain and stiffness. He's getting light therapy for his skin disease. He's on an NSAID that's pretty much controlling his hand pain that he has, but it's his back pain that is his big problem. What would you recommend next for this guy? Survey says we're up uh, up in the high 60s, 80, 80 responders. Do I hear 90? 90, 99. 90, 100? 111. Yes. yes. All right. <laughs> um, and actually, with all the additions, not changing much. 71% okay. TNF inhibitor, 23% IL-17 with 4 for a 23 and 2 for a jack inhibitor. Okay. So, I, again, no right answer here, but I put this up for a reason, and that is to think about as we manage our patients, which drugs work for which components of disease, and it's very clear that TNF inhibitors work for the axial disease. We know that because they're approved for AS and, and, and non-radiographic XPA. Same thing with IL-17 inhibitors. What about the IL-23 inhibitors? Where are they going to come in for spine disease? Well, I put this up because I wanted to bring up a cautionary note, okay? so. Here we have some data from the one study in psoriatic arthritis that specifically looked at patients with axial diseases. This is the maximized study with secukinumab, and it showed that, again, both of the two doses that are out there for secukinumab, either 300 or 150 milligrams every four weeks, were effective for overall response, but also worked for the um, back disease in patients who had significant back involvement with their psoriatic arthritis. And then we have this study. And this is a post hoc analysis of the Guzelkamab study that I showed you before. And this is a combined look at the Discover 1 and 2, which were the two pivotal studies they did with Guzelkamab. And they looked at the patients who had spondylitis 
Um, based on historical x-rays or what the investigator or the treating physician said. And if you look there on the left, it looks like they did pretty well, right? Their BASDI scores improved significantly relative to placebo. The question on the BASDI questionnaire that asked specifically about spinal pain improved, okay? The percentage of patients who achieved a 50% improvement in BASDI scores improved. Great drug for axial disease, right? Be careful. This came out of uh, the ACR meeting just this past year, and I, and I bring this up as a cautionary notice. We're starting to think about axial disease. And this was from a completely different cohort, but they looked at a bunch of patients with psoriatic arthritis who were about to start a biologic therapy. And they administered the BASDI scoring, uh, the BASDI questionnaire to all of them both to patients who had purely peripheral disease with no spine involvement at all, and patients who had both axial and peripheral disease. And lo and behold, at baseline, their BASDI scores were comparable. And when they looked at who improved with TNF inhibitor or IL-17 inhibitors, it was about the same whether they had peripheral disease or both axial and peripheral disease even in the patients who supposedly had more axial involvement, including that question two, which is axial pain, all right? So the takeaway from this one is that the BASDI score and a lot of the composite scores that we use to look at axial disease probably pick up more overall joint disease and maybe picking up overall joint disease. So I'd be very cautious in a trial when you see those kind of data from assuming that that means that the drug is definitely good for the axial disease because it may just be picking up overall improvement. I'm not saying that IL-23 inhibitors aren't great. They work very well for joint disease. It's not clear that they're working specifically for the axial disease. Okay, I wanted to stop Eric there because that's another um, section that goes on for a long time. But uh, I thought that was a really interesting presentation from Dr. Ritterman. Um, he covered a lot of interesting things. Artie, um, uh, do you think this kind of data where IL-17 inhibitors are uh, as good as adalimumab in the joints, but much better in the skin, is this going to change the way rheumatologists are going to treat psoriatic arthritis? And we have to deal with skin. Another, another survey he did in there that I'm not, I didn't show said that, how do you manage uh, psoriatic disease? Do I manage it alone and I do the skin and I do the joints, but the psoriasis guys do the skin or do I get help from the psoriasis guy, the skin, the dermatologist, or, or I can manage both. And surprising number of rheumatologists are managing skin disease. We're not afraid of it. We're, we're going after it. So this data where the IL-17s are just as good as adalimumab and joints, but better at skin is going to change what rheumatologists are going to do. Oh, maybe yes and no. The, uh, yes, I think rheumatologists are much more uh, familiar with and comfortable with the use of medications, uh, dermatologic medications, even topical agents. I think we've all learned a whole lot more about that. But I think part of the reason why people say that they're very comfortable managing skin psoriasis is that when the patients come to us, they're there for their joints mostly. Uh, if we, we, we tend to see very few people who have really bad skin. If you think back to your last hundred psoriatic arthritis patients, how many of them had a body surface area greater than 10%? Um, I would say just a handful of them. So I think we're comfortable for that reason, but I think, uh, for people who have really 
uh, more serious involvement in skin, there's still plenty of room for, for collaboration. So, uh, but I think these data do help us because they will give us kind of an idea of what to expect. We're using these agents more. We've all had people who've been on a TNF inhibitor for their psoriatic arthritis and we want more. So now we have additional options. So I think the, the data will get us more comfortable. So I want to remind everybody first that these um, uh, Tuesday Night Rheumatology uh, excerpts from Room Now Live are brought to you by AbbVie. We want to thank them for their support of this. Um, I want to encourage you to ask questions. Use the Q&A button, and we're going to answer questions um, in between. And then also at the end, if we have any questions, Artie and I will be, be on hand for that. Our next speaker is going to be uh, Dr. Alexis Ogby from uh University of Pennsylvania. Alexis is a great rheumatologist, very smart psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis maven, but she's also an epidemiologist. We've asked her to talk to us about the epidemiology of psoriatic disease. So, oops, let's go to this. All right, here we go. Alexis, take it away. Start with the epidemiology of psoriasis. The prevalence of psoriasis in the Western world is somewhere between 1.5 and 3%. Estimates in the U.S. seem like they're in the two to three percent range. Now, this disease is mainly this disease mainly affects adults. It's not that common in children. Only about a, a prevalence of 0.13 percent among children in the U.S. However, if you think about this disease being a very prevalent disease, it affects over 125 million patients worldwide. So it's pretty common. Males and females tend to be equally affected. This is also true in psoriatic arthritis. E equal male-female predilection. And finally, the age of onset. So in psoriasis in particular, there tends to be a bimodal presentation. And this presentation tends to be in the 18 to 40 range or in the later 50 to 70 range. So it's kind of that earlier group and the later group. When we talk about psoriasis, we typically have in our mind the idea of plaque psoriasis. So those kind of raised scaly plaques. Um, but in addition, there are several other types of psoriasis, including guttate psoriasis, that's that small kind of pinpoint lesions all over the body or in, in large distributions that tend to be um, following a strep infection. That's one example. Uh, pustular psoriasis that tends to affect the hands and feet. And then erythrodermal psoriasis, which can kind of look like a burn or erythema all over the body. Those patients tend to need to be, um, are, are frequently need to be hospitalized, or at least that, that is a risk. So this is an example of plaque psoriasis showing the kind of key features of psoriasis um, on the scalp. So there's erythemas and erythematous base. Induration, if you rub your hand or finger over that, that would feel raised. And then uh, the scales, so those are those silvery scales that we think about. Um, here's an example of psoriasis in the ear as well. Psoriasis also affects the nails, and the nails are commonly affected both in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. About 50 to 80% of patients have um, nail disease as well. And the classic features are these pitting lesions. So uh, it literally looks like, looks like you take a pin and you push into the nail, as well as onycholysis, where you kind of see this um, lifting away of the nail from the nail bed. Ridges are not necessarily a psoriasis phenomenon. Uh, the, the nail pitting and the onycholysis are the most specific although there are a variety of other nail features as well. All right, so let's move from psoriasis into psoriatic arthritis. Psoriatic arthritis happens to be the most common comorbidity among patients with psoriasis. 
Um, the prevalence in the general population of psoriatic arthritis, so across all patients, not just psoriasis, is somewhere around 0.1 to 1%, depending on the population that you're studying, and particularly around a quarter percent in the United States. Now, the prevalence of psoriatic arthritis among patients with psoriasis is obviously higher, so somewhere around 20 to 30% is often what we quote. A recent systematic review by Ali Nahi found that it was around 20%. The incidence of psoriatic arthritis, so the number of new cases among patients with psoriasis who haven't had a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis at baseline, varies from 0.27 to 2.7 um, per 100 patient years. So that means over the course of one year for 100 patients, about one to two will develop a new diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. What's interesting, though, is that these estimates are based on diagnosed disease. And what we know from some studies is that about 15% of patients with psoriasis have undiagnosed psoriatic arthritis, so it hasn't yet been recognized um, or officially diagnosed. That's from Volani et al. They had a nice systematic review about this. So when we talk about the prevalence of psoriatic arthritis in psoriasis, we kind of think about the whole group, which makes sense. Um, but if you want to look at the subgroups of patients with psoriasis based on the severity of the disease, if you break them into mild, moderate, or severe psoriasis, where mild is less than 3% body surface area, body surface area is 1% of, the, of uh, the palm, the patient's palm represents 1% of body surface area. So 0 to 3 palms is mild, 3 to 10 palms is moderate, and then more than 10 palms is severe. So about 30% of patients have moderate, about 12% of patients have severe, so then more than half have mild. But then if you look at the present prevalence of psoriatic arthritis in those three groups, there's clearly a difference. So among patients with mild disease, it's only around 5%. Um, around mo with moderate, it's around 10%. And then among patients with severe psoriasis, it's around 30%. The incidence actually looks quite similar in that there is a stepwise increase in incidence of psoriatic arthritis by severity of psoriasis as well. Now, you may say, well, of course, my, where, well, most of my patients in clinical practice have mild psoriasis. Yes, um, that is true. So the vast majority of patients with psoriasis have mild disease. So it also makes sense. The majority of patients with psoriatic arthritis have mild psoriasis as well. It's just that when you break them into these groups, you see a difference in prevalence and a difference in incidence. So speaking of incidence among patients with this risk factor, severe psoriasis, what are some other risk factors for these, this disease? We recently reviewed this in a Nature Reviews rheumatology paper um, published in 2019. And the dark blue are things that are, are found to be uh, risk factors for disease. And you can see the number of studies is kind of um, shown by the width of the bar. So you can see that obesity is a very common risk, commonly studied risk factor, and it seems to be repeated in multiple different studies. So clear risk factor there. Having symptoms for the disease, like uh, stiffness, joint pain, or fatigue, whereas associated with having an eventual diagnosis for psoriatic arthritis. And then so a couple studies of psoriasis severity as well. Smoking and um, psoriasis duration, not quite so easily related. We don't, we're not quite sure about that. Not linear relationships for sure. And then um, nail disease uh, is a risk factor for psoriatic arthritis. That might be that there's an enthesis right below the nail there. And finally, trauma. So trauma is an interesting one. We kind of think about stress being a risk factor for psoriasis. So many people have psoriasis come out after a very stressful event, whether that be physically stressful or emotionally or mentally stressful. And it seems that this is probably also true for psoriatic arthritis. 
So specifically, there's been a study on trauma, like joint trauma or bone trauma, and those were associated with development of psoriatic arthritis as well, among patients with psoriasis and among the general population. So we think that psoriasis may have, that some patients with psoriasis may have some of these different uh, kind of underlying risk factors, whether that's obesity, medical comorbidities, some underlying inflammation, or genetic risk factors, some of which we don't fully understand yet. And then there's some second hit or traumatic trauma, for example, new comorbidities, some stress of some sort that kind of really triggers the disease. And it may be that there's this continuum from having skin disease, having preclinical disease, then subclinical disease where you can see it on an ultrasound, for example, but it's not yet uh, clinically overt. Then prodromal where patients have sy symptoms, but we don't really yet see it on exam. And then they have overt PSA. Now, I bring this up because it's kind of important that we recognize this prodromal phase. There's a lot of, we don't know what exactly to call that. A lot of patients are diagnosed with fibromyalgia in that point in time because you can't yet see anything on exam. If you have a patient with psoriasis and fibro, that's someone I do follow over time just to see if something else comes up. Because within three to five years, sometimes some new inflammatory arthritis may come up. All right, so then what are some potentially actionable risk factors? Um, so these are some things that we've been discussing in the literature, but also in uh, trying to address in different studies. One is the psoriasis itself. You wonder if you treat psoriasis with biologic agents, for example, or even phototherapy, maybe there is some modifiable effect on development of psoriatic arthritis such that we kind of remove this potential trigger time. Obesity, we do know, is a major risk factor. So, and there is one study that has suggested that if you lose weight, you can actually improve out, um, the, the likelihood of developing psoriatic arthritis. And finally, depression. So this is an interesting one. Depression has come up as a risk factor for psoriatic arthritis and also potentially a risk factor for psoriasis. Um, it may be a form of stress. So maybe reducing stress or reducing depression, for example, could improve outcomes. So lots of different studies to better understand what's going on here. I won't go into this in too much detail, but I think this is kind of a, a space to watch in terms of how we might think about better understanding this. Um, this is that reference that I mentioned um, about if you modify weight, um, if you decreased your weight among those who are obese, you actually decreased your risk for developing psoriatic arthritis. If you gained weight, you actually increased your risk for developing psoriatic arthritis. So kind of interesting when you're counseling patients with psoriasis about weight loss. Okay, speaking of obesity, this is one of our many comorbidities um, in psoriatic arthritis, in psoriatic disease. So I put PSD here. So for both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, they share many of the same comorbidities. So first there's extra articular manifestations like uveitis and inflammatory bowel disease. Now those are kind of part and parcel with the disease and maybe genetically related. So I'm not going to talk too much about those, except for that they are important to ask about in your review of systems. Cardiovascular outcomes are important for uh, considering um, management of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So I will screen for lipids, for example. I will do the Framingham risk score, or you can use the more updated risk score from uh, American Academy of, uh, uh, sorry, ACA, AHA, American Heart Association. And then metabolic syndrome and metabolic disease more broadly. So there's an increased risk for uh, increased prevalence of metabolic syndrome and an increased risk for metabolic diseases in patients with psoriatic arthritis. We're going to talk more about that. 
Mental health, depression, anxiety are very common in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So we're going to talk more about that. And then specifically for psoriatic arthritis, fibromyalgia is quite common. So we'll come back to that in a minute. So let's start with depression and anxiety. They're common in both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, slightly more common in patients with psoriatic arthritis. The prevalence of having depression or anxiety or both is around 36% in one particular study um, from the Toronto group. So quite high, and that was before the pandemic. So I'm sure that many of you are recognizing more and more depression and anxiety among our patients. <clears throat> so this is really important. First of all, depression and anxiety are a form of stress, so they can perpetuate the disease. Additionally, patients with depression and anxiety are less likely to respond to therapy, so it's important to address this as well. Finally, there is an increased risk for suicide among patients with psoriatic arthritis as well. The age and sex-adjusted hazard ratio is around three compared to the general population. Even for rheumatoid arthritis, it's around 2.5. So how do we approach mental health in practice? So there's a variety of different ways. The first is just to ask, to ask straight up about anxiety and depression. Um, you can do that as a part of your review systems. You can inform patients about the association. That's really important just to normalize that. Can revert patients for um, further assessment and management to primary care and treating the disease often does help the depression and anxiety. You can use screening tools. So for example, in, uh, the, re in the review systems or more formalized screening tools like the PHQ-2, which is just asking about over the last two weeks, have you had any little interest in doing things, feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? So it's a natural extension from talking about depression and anxiety as key components of psoriatic arthritis, that fibromyalgia is also common. It's been found to be prevalent in about 20 to 30% of patients with psoriatic arthritis. This is also very important because if you're treating a patient with both psoriatic arthritis and fibromyalgia, you may find that these patients are not responding to therapy or they're cycling through therapies. And it may be because the patient is having continued pain, but not active inflammation. So it's important to help patients figure out what the difference is between the two symptoms and what the therapy is likely to cover. I often draw this diagram out that talks about sleep, fatigue, biomechanics, meaning like your physical activity, exercise, physical therapy, pain, and stress, and how these things are all related, and we have to address all of them in order to kind of improve the pain. So only one part of this is actually the disease, uh, treating the psoriatic arthritis, but treating the fibromyalgia is also very important. All right, next onto the, the cardiovascular comorbidities. So myocardial infarction is significantly increased in both psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. In fact, mostly in patients with more moderate to severe psoriasis as opposed to less severe psoriasis. Patients with mild disease probably don't have a significant increase in, in cardiovascular disease. So it's important to monitor for cardiovascular disease as I already mentioned by screening for lipids, for example. Also important to recognize that diabetes is more common in our patients. The hazard ratio for diabetes is around 1.4. So you can see in these particular studies that diabetes is even more common or the incidence is even higher in psoriatic arthritis, the center bar there, compared to rheumatoid arthritis or controls at any given age. So when you're looking at the labs coming back, the glucose being high is really important to recognize. Obesity and psoriatic arthritis, we've already talked about that being very common, also problematic in that um, patients who are obese are less likely to respond to therapy. So weight reduction is really important. In fact, among patients who are starting a new TNF inhibitor, 
who were assigned to a freely managed diet versus a Mediterranean diet, it didn't end up really mattering how you managed your calories too much, although Mediterranean diet was slightly better. Uh, it mattered, mattered more whether you lost weight. So among those patients, if they lost 5 to 10% of their body weight compared to less than 5% of their body weight, the odds of them achieving minimal disease activity was 3.75. If they lost more than 10% of their body weight, the odds of achieving minimal disease activity was 6.67. So substantial benefit from weight loss. So we should be encouraging all of our obese patients to improve, to lose weight. Obviously very hard. Um, one of the things that we're working on in one of some of our studies, Leahy Eater and I are to develop programs that you could refer your patients to so that um, they can, it can help them with diet and weight loss. Because right now, this is very difficult to get patients to lose weight. Finally, when we're thinking about mortality in psoriatic arthritis, um, you know, we talk about a whole bunch of different comorbidities. So are these comorbidities increasing mortality? Well, probably individually, yes. So if they have cardiovascular disease, they may be more increased risk for mortality. Same with diabetes, for example. However, as a broad spectrum across the general population, it's less clear. So there's some studies suggesting that there is an increased risk for cardiovascular or for mortality among patients with psoriatic arthritis. It seems that there is a clearer increased risk for mortality among patients with severe psoriasis. Um, however, there are also studies suggesting that there's not much of an increased risk at all in, in mortality and that that's particularly true in the most recent time points. If you look in the distant past, um, there probably was a significant increased risk. Additionally, the types of patients being studied and the severity of the disease is also relevant for whether or not they're uh, at increased risk for mortality. So if you looked in the Toronto cohort, which was a kind of a disease-specific cohort, particularly back in 2007, they published studies suggesting that there was a significant increased risk for um, mortality, and that was and that was actually different by the severity of a patient's disease. So this argues for getting patients to lower disease severity, but encouraging patients that on average, most patients don't have a significant increased risk for mortality. Thank you, Alexis. That was great. Um, so a lot of, uh, boy, she can cover a lot of information right quick. Um, no, we did not turn up the speed of her um, recording, but um, again, she really uh, holds your attention. Um, Artie, the, the issue of um, the number of psoriasis patients will evolve into psoriatic arthritis. I've seen that number bounce around. I always thought the more interesting, like um, um, uh, Daphna Gladman data of 30% was probably closer to what I was thinking was true. She says 20%. Where do you stand on what the risk is? Or is that even important? Well, the, the, the ranges historically have been 6% as a low to in the high 40s as a, a high. Of course, the, they're really subject uh, back in those days to a, a, a bunch of bias. The more, uh, the more skin someone had, the more they'd go to the doctor. The more they go to the doctor, the more they'd found uh, to have psoriatic arthritis. Uh, I think it's 20%. And I think the, the, as you get to 30%, the higher numbers in the modern surveys are done with very sound methods. But what they do is they go to a dermatology clinic and say, okay, take out the people who have a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis and then examine the rest of them. And I think when you do that, what you find is that there are people who might be defined as psoriatic arthritis by Casper criteria, 
but they don't care. They don't want it. They got one dactylitic toe and uh, they qualify for Caspar and they, they don't want to go see the rheumatologist. So I think that's an important other aspect of it. So I think 20% is more uh, reasonable and manageable. Uh, and, um, you know, that's the number that I, I use with the patients. So I agree with her. All right, let's get to our, our final presentation. What's unique about this is that it's a nurse practitioner who works in, in, in my community in Dallas. Um, Melody Young um, is part of modern dermatology. They're a high volume dermatology group. They do a lot of psoriatic arthritis studies and see a lot of psoriasis patients. Um, they're great collaborators with rheumatologists. And, um, and we asked Melody to come by and speak to us about assessing patients with psoriatic disease. And she also give you some examples of, um, of some things that aren't always psoriasis. So let's hear from uh, Melody Young. Let me um, share her screen. Jack, is there another dermatology group on the other side of the street called uh, Ancient Dermatology? Or uh, as opposed, I mean, what? Wait, they're like an alternative. They're the modern dermatology. No, that would be all other dermatologists <laughs> are ancient in their um, approach to the disease. But you didn't hear me say that here on a recorded program. But uh, well, you know that's the old thing about the uh, dermatology. Actually, the National Psoriasis Foundation did this a few years ago. They cold called dermatology offices and uh, across the nation, I believe, and they said. Uh, you know, I'm a patient with psoriasis. So when can I get in? And it was usually like, well, a you know, week from next Thursday. And but then they call the same office and say, I, I need a Botox. When can I get in? They'd say, well, uh, how was like three thirty for you? <laughs> there must be a message in there somewhere. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, but <laughs> all right. Melody Young talking about assessing. Um, psoriatic disease? The assessment tools. You know, we really don't use uh, assessment tools in the derm clinics the way you do, tools and surveys and things like that. It's more of how much do you have, where do you have it, and are we confident that's what, what you've got. And there's been a big push. Um, everybody says that you will know severe psoriasis when you see it. That's easy. And then most of the time, we kind of know what mild is, but we don't really, aren't good at defining moderate. And so there's a big push to have sort of a dichotomous definition that you have it um, or not. And then if you, if you do have it, can you get management with just minimal treatment, such as topical therapies? And if not, then you need to move on to other categories. So we do look at body surface area. We do sort of a global assessment. Sometimes it's just, are you well controlled? Or is it bothering you? Is it affecting your quality of life? But there are tools available, but mostly those are used in um, looking in clinical trials. So this is a, a um, just to help you see what a mild amount of psoriasis can be if you're looking strictly at body surface area with this guy who had those are pustules on his hands and you can see how it's destroying his nails that's going to be one percent body surface area which is the totality of the palm but clearly that is going to have a significant quality of life impact so you can't just say that has mild disease and this young lady um, 
uh, same thing, 1% body surface area. And as you know, we do have uh, some therapies that are FDA approved for use in as little as 1% body surface area, if that includes the uh, genital area or the peri perianal area. So again, assessing disease and trying to figure out, am I gonna call this mild, moderate, or severe, it can, is very much uh, based on what the patient tells you and then also what, how you would classify it. So the areas that you're commonly going to see it, one of, the, one of my pet peeves is when someone has diagnosed a person's psoriasis and just walked in and saying, what are you here for? And the patient sticks their elbows up and said, I have psoriasis. They give them some ointment, send them out the door. The average derm clinic appointment is seven minutes. Um, so that person has to present what skin they want looked at, figure out what it is, what you're going to do about it, and, and move on. But if you're not looking at all those areas and asking those questions, in the most common areas that I look, the first thing I'm going to do if a rheumatologist sends a patient to the clinic is really dig throughout the whole scalp area, look in behind the ears, ask about genital area, and if they'll let me look at those areas, particularly the gluteal cleft, um, all around their belly button umbilicus, looking through their nails, fingers and toes, um, knees and elbows, yes, we see it there all the time, but there are a lot of other rashes that show up on knees and elbows and it can, can throw you off. The lower back and then, of course, palms and soles. We look at psoriasis, we use the uh, induration, erythema, and scale, and that's how we rate it in clinical trials as well. And the most frequently com uh, frequent complaints of symptoms, when I started training in the late 80s, uh, got into this field, I was told psoriasis didn't itch, and I would try to tell my patients that, eczema itch, psoriasis didn't. But when a survey was actually done about 15, 18 years ago and asked people what their top complaints were, itch, and pain rose to the top. So I had to rephrase my uh, thoughts about what this disease does to people. And they, they also have difficulty articulating what that pain or discomfort is. They'll describe it as tingling, burning, stinging. But there is definitely sensation there. It's not just a visual situation. And still to this day, I have patients who will come in to the clinic and um, be, have been told by some dermatologist somewhere that this is a cosmetic disease. So the other things that you want to find out just in history when you're trying to determine if they do have psoriatic disease or skin, have, have you ever had a rash, even if it's not there at present, because it can wax and wane. It can wax and wane from, from a year or less out to, there was one survey that showed as much as 54 years be, between episodes. So have you ever had a rash? Did you ever have strep throat as a child and develop a rash? Do you think you have heavy dandruff? Because oftentimes that's the way they'll describe it. Do you have itchy genitalia? Um, it's usually scrotal area for men and the vulvar area for women, and then of course perianal itching. And then they, you ask about abnormal nails. They almost always think that they have fungal infections in their nails or have had some sort of trauma. And if you do nail cultures in psoriatic nails, a lot of times it's going to be positive for fungus because it's just an opportunistic infection that's there in those damaged, damaged nails. Then the other things are asking about the family history. 
a lot of times they will say, yes, my grandmother had horrible nails, or we had really bad eczema in the family. They don't know the difference. They really, really don't. And then facial rash. Facial rash is incredibly common in childhood onset psoriatic disease, and they will think it's just seborrhea or have a different name for it. Because again, they've been getting their information off of social media sites as to what the disease should look like. And then we are always digging around for other immune-mediated disease. Do they or family members have, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease? And I'm sure y'all, you've asked those questions as well. Okay, so this is a gentleman that showed up in the clinic about two weeks ago, and he had been a clinical trial patient with us. And, you know, they disappeared for a period of time. He was, we got him on compassionate care. He was doing really well, like everyone else, decided that he probably should stop treating because of the uh, coronavirus that was going around. And, of course, his psoriasis blows up. And so this is a great example of that silvery scale, fairly well demarcated. And he was starting to have edema. He was literally starting to swell because of his uh, skin being so eruptive and so incredibly itchy. And he was, he was very, very miserable. Um, then these are other patients with presentations of psoriasis that don't look as typical as what I just showed you with that other gentleman with severe disease. This African-American lady, she has lymphedema with a lot of very hyperkeratotic thickening skin. She has acanthosis nigricans for that velvety texture in people with insulin resistance. You'll see that everywhere the skin folds. But the plaques are definitely evident in the, um, on her back. This person in the middle has psoriasis as well, and it just doesn't look as typical because they've been trimming off a lot of the excess plaque around their foot. And they did not even know that that's what they had. They had a couple of other little spots, and we started digging and looking and said, oh, well, you know, that's going to be the same thing. And then this is a uh, younger person on that has facial psoriasis and, again, did not even realize that that's what it was. Just had a couple of other small plaque areas in different places, but we're looking for that silvery scale and being very well demarcated. Um, we know that there are a lot of triggers, and the reason that matters, um, I'll show you some, some situations that have come into clinic in the last uh, few weeks where things have triggered disease and made them erupt a lot more in people that have otherwise been, been stable. The amount of drug-induced psoriasis is really, maybe I'm more aware of it, I, I don't know, but it just seems like it's never-ending. And then stressors, physical, emotional stressors. I've had people this year that have always been clear, 10, 15 years I've taken care of them. They haven't been difficult to keep under control. But this year, it's a struggle. First thing I always ask is, are you taking your medicine? Have you stopped taking your medicine? Um, you know, has there been any interruption in care? The, the age of onset in skin is 28, which means that uh, I'm going to see their joint disease, if they're going to get it, begin to show up in their mid to late 30s uh, statistically. You can see it at any age. I've only seen a few cases of infant psoriasis. But we do see it in childhood, but most of the time it's going to, there's a bimodal prevalence, which usually is when they hit 
uh, the onslaught of puberty, you'll see an eruption develop for the, and then again, you'll see it as they sort of go through a postmenopausal period. Geriatrician or geriatrics, um, not as common, and it's pretty uncommon to see it. And usually, if I have an older person come in, I think they have psoriasis, I'm, that is one of the cases where I will biopsy, because most of the time you can figure it out without it. This guy came in just a few weeks ago, and um, the GI doctor is a pal. He works in the building, and he texted me and said, this guy has been so sick, I put him on infliximab, and now he's got a horrible rash. Please tell me I didn't give him psoriasis. And he had literally lost 40 pounds over, and it was new onset Crohn's. He had never really had problems until, you know, the, the last decade. And we had to biopsy him, and sure enough, it was, it was psoriasis eruption. Those brown spots on his back, you know, those are just um, keratoses. Those are nothing. Um, this young lady was doing great in clinical trials, completely clear. She decided to go on a float trip back in the summer, went down to the Comal River in south and central Texas, um, and got sunburned. And this is what's called the, the Kebner phenomenon. So this is a trigger sensation, not by drug, but because of trauma to the skin. And we had to, she was doing beautifully, and we had to completely change her medicine because the biologic she was on, once it lets this happen, I just couldn't, it, I couldn't get it to go away without completely altering her medication. This gentleman is a genius. He is a sort of a nano medicine technology physicist. He's unbelievable. And uh, he has been, just started immunotherapy for uh, his lung cancer, and this erupted within a matter of 10 days, and had to do a biopsies on him, and it was proven that this was a, a psoriasiform reaction. So you can see it, again, drug eruptions are common. This was a rheumatology, uh, a rheumatologist sent this patient over. He, this man had kids at home. He was doing great. He was on adalimumab, and then all of this happened. He had never had more than 1% body surface area of psoriasis, and this erupted. But we quickly knew that something had changed. Why was he breaking out? And it was that he had, his kids had been sick. He did not realize that he had, was positive for strep. Sometimes they're symptomatic, sometimes they're not. We treated him, of course, with antibiotics, then having to change his medication to etanercept. And he's been clear, this was uh, about, the, Christmas before last, and he's been doing beautifully ever since, and I hardly ever see him anymore. Another drug onset eruption, and this young lady from uh, Central Texas, and she is uh, was given, she had very thin and didn't have any high risk factors for hydrodonatus. She didn't smoke, none of that, but she had been on adalimumab and was then doing pretty well, and with uh, several months on with that, uh, being on adalimumab, suddenly she just broke out with this severe, scaly, painful rash on the scalp. All of her hair started falling out, and she came up to see us. And um, of course, it was psoriasis that was um, induced by the adalimumab. So it definitely happens. I didn't hear you talking about Aprimolast much this morning, but I always show this because in dermatology there's this, people are convinced that Aprimolast is 
safer than some of the biologics and and I'm not sure where they get that bit of information but and I always want them to know that you can have a reaction to any one of the medications uh, all the medicines work for some people yet there's no medicine that works for all the people and this particular particular gentleman had we started in Hanaprimal Alaska? He wanted an oral agent, wanted to get away from something injectable. wasn't sure if it would work, but he had a lot of itching. He has uh, had significant Palmer and plantar plaque psoriasis, so I thought it's worth a try. And boy, within a month, he blew up, was rashy. I wish I'm not sure if you can see his scalp, but you can see pustular top eruptions happening with his scalp, and then the pustules would become scaly and the um, erythema that he had, and he's another guy that I had to biopsy because I wasn't sure if this was drug eruption or psoriasis, and come to find out it was actually both. So he had a drug rash to the primalast, and then, of course, it kebnerized into psoriasis, So, and I still see him. Um, and then the, this is what erythrodermic psoriasis can look like. This is a young woman, and sad to say, I literally got the phone call yesterday from her mother that she had passed away. She was um, struggled with the alcohol abuse and was young, much younger than I am. And her disease would get significant, you could be on the same medicine, her disease would clear significantly when she had her alcoholism well managed. And when she didn't, um, when she started drinking a lot, it would do this. So that's why lifestyle changes can make such a huge difference. This is a drug-induced case. It looks so incredibly small, but she, this person was biopsied, sent to us, um, because it, the, it came back as uh, psoriasis, and there were only a few plaques, but it's incredibly itchy, and the lady said, yeah, I'll, you know, do something, I want it gone. And we looked at her medication list and thought, why is this woman, geriatric woman, getting new onset psoriasis that just keeps erupting and is so itchy and had her get off her beta blocker and it just went away. So sometimes simple, simple things can make a difference. Okay, we're back. Thank you very much, Melody. Um, that was really um, an interesting walk through the range of what they see in a dermatology practice. Uh, really, especially all the drug-induced stuff. I think we see um, a fair amount of drug-induced psoriasis with all our TNF inhibitor use. Um, the number that's, I think, pretty well documented is about one in a thousand. And there's a recent publication of pediatric literature that wasn't quite that high, but it was still like above one in 300 um, and maybe even as high as one in a thousand. So uh, we will see them because we have that many people on TNF inhibitors, but all the other things that cause it. Um, do you see a lot of drug-induced psoriasis already? I you know not so much. And I think the, as you said, the publications, I think are starting to come uh, to the sense that they actually see it more in GI. And there's probably the, some genetic or epi, epigenetic explanation for that we, that we just don't know about. Um, but I, I, thankfully I don't see um, a ton of it. Uh, you know, just, just once every couple of years, it seems like. So um, I, I, maybe I'm missing some of it. So we got three or four good questions I want to ask, but I want to start with Artie with a question um, that sort of arose um, last week in the New England Journal. They had those uh, two back-to-back -back publications on bimikizumab, um, a dual inhibitor of IL-17A and IL-17H. Worked great, in, and those are, these are studies in psoriasis, worked great. Um, 
Chris Richland did one about psoriatic arthritis, looked really good. But the interesting thing about those two psoriasis trials, one head-to-head against adalimumab, the other one head-to-head against secukinumab, is that um, the candidiasis numbers I thought were so really surprising. So, you know, Eric mentioned candidiasis, in a, but it's really, in practice, it's almost nothing. And in the studies, it's a few, you know, single digit percentages, one, two, three, something like that. But really you don't see much candidiasis, but when they use the dual inhibitors, um, I, I put up three studies that basically said the same thing. On the dual inhibitor IL-17, the candidiasis rates were 15 to 19% compared to the comparator drug, which was like, again, one to 3%. Artie, what's going on? Well, I, I, that's uh, something that we were on the lookout for. If you have a uh, congenital immunodeficiency with of STAT3, um, you have a deficiency in IL-17 and you get candidiasis. Uh, so this is one of those instances where I think people were looking for candidiasis and maybe they found more than they would have if they weren't looking for it. But it is a thing. And remember, these are clinical trial patients and these are uh, generally healthier otherwise than your free range patients. And although uh, it seems like it's not complicated or severe uh, candidiasis, it it certainly does happen. And um, I don't know. I think that gives us gives us a little bit of pause. I remember learning, uh, you know, many years ago that if someone had thrush, they always had esophageal candidiasis. That 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 was a reservoir of candida in someone who happened to have it in the mouth, and that's why you do the swish and swallow or the troche or uh, other ways to 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 get at that. So it's limited. And it's superficial, but. Um, it's, you know, it's certainly not anything we would, uh, just dismiss or, or take too lightly. So, uh, I don't know. I think that, I think we're going to find that there are some people for whom, um, that may keep them from wanting to use this class of medication, which I think also gets back to them. How, what is their inherent risk, uh, that might also predispose them to that? You know, so, most of the signaling with IL-17 is supposedly through IL-17A, which is why that's the preferred target for, for dalimumab and, or, or actually not for dalimumab, but the, the exekizumab and the secukinumab. Um, but the knockouts, you know, animal knockouts of IL-17 is where you get the candidiasis um, and, and human uh, correlates to that's where you get candidiasis. Is it that you're getting much more complete inhibition of IL-17 and you have to engage IL-17H, and is that clinically important other than using a dual inhibitor antibody like sonolicumizumab, whatever it is, and, and this bimicizumab? Yeah, we don't know. And, and as you said, we have bridalimab, which is a broader IL-17 blocker because it blocks the A receptor, not the A uh, component of the cytokine. So it's more broad. And um, we don't have as many data in psoriatic arthritis. There's more data in psoriasis and it's proven psoriasis. But um, is that even a little bit less? As you know, it's hard to compare rates of adverse events. You just, you can't compare across trials. So I think this is something we may want, need to see more from data from registries and post-approval. Uh, are there going to be differences uh, in the agents? And if you think of the secukinumab and ixacazumab, how commonly has that been a big uh, uh, issue in the clinic 
it's come up, but it's not been, again, to me, it seems like it's individual people that some people seem more susceptible to it. So for the um, current um, drugs approved for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis specifically, um, uh, Rebecca Marsden asked about, is there a difference in um, ACR scores, radiographic data um, that might help us in maybe making better, smarter choices? Well, the, as you mentioned, Jack, there's a couple articles this week with head-to-head studies. And boy, the, in psoriasis, the dermatologists are, they, they are really uh, wiping the floor with us in terms of head-to-head studies. Um, last time I had a, a, on a slide, I think there were 15, and now there's that many more of them. And I think they do allow them to make sort of broad generalizations about efficacy. And if skin efficacy was crazy, it was, was crucially important, that might impact your, your choice of therapies. But, you know, it's also the individual patient. Um, I had a, a patient this week who has psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and actually pretty fair psoriasis. She, if, if she goes off all her meds, she um, will get like five, 10% body surface area. And she had been on, she'd been on everything and got other issues, but uh, she was on gazelcomab and didn't think it was working well for her. And she, she said, I want to go back to Etanercept. It was the original. Uh, she, she was reading on the internet apparently. And I said, yeah, you know, it was the first TNF inhibitor that we had available to us. Um, went back, I said, you know, had the discussion with her and I went back on it. I just saw her yesterday. Her skin is doing great. Better on the Tanercept than on the IL-23 inhibitor. And I said, you know, that's not supposed to happen. Um, but it did and she was super happy. So uh, as much as we're informed uh, about choices in head-to-head studies, you have to remember the individual person in front of us. So we have all the, you know, we've gone from TNS to 17s, 12, 23s, now 23s. And now we have jacks getting into this game and psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. Tofacitinib is uh, approved um, for psoriatic arthritis. Um, the upadacitinib and filgotinib have data that looks good. And, you know, if that, that will probably relate to an indication at some point in the future. Um, but they all look the same with regard to the joint outcomes, right? I mean, they're, we don't have head-to-heads, but they certainly do look the same with regard to ACR um, 20, 50, 70 scores. Do you, do you see a differentiation? And what's it going to take for you to use a JAK inhibitor in psoriatic disease? Well, I, I think we are using them, of course. And um, I think one of the differences, the, the, the list that you just ran otherwise, TNF, 1223, 23, 17, um, one thing they share is you don't have to check labs. You don't have to monitor. And I think that's a big consideration. I think that uh, especially a psoriatic arthritis patient who's younger, doesn't like to go to the lab, you know, doesn't want to be sick. Uh, I think that even though getting blood tests drawn is not the end of the world, I think uh, for the jackanibs, at least for now, you really want to keep checking the labs because you will find some signals in some patients that would make you adjust or change medicine. So I, I think they'll be used more. I think we'll, you know, people love that it's a pill, but the monitoring aspect, um, you know, that that's a consideration. Uh, Lake of Barbosa asks about um, if you can't use methotrexate in psoriatic arthritis, 
where are you going next? And is it, are you going to start with your answer to the last question? Do they want oral? Do they want injectable? How much monitoring do they want? Is it a lifestyle question? Do you have a, a an answer for that? Like what you would use first or next? No, I think that the TNFs um, in some cases because of the step, uh, the, what step they're on for the insurance, um, they're often the next one and seems to go, oh, we've had more experience with them than anything else. So I think, and if we get biosimilars of subcutaneous TNFs, I think that position will be pretty solid that they'll be the first uh, second line agent to go to. So when it comes to a primalast in the psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, well, or for rheumatologists talk about psoriatic arthritis. I've always asserted that a primalast is a drug that works really well in a minority of people, including patients with really bad arthritis and psoriasis, but yet it's always considered to be the drug for mild disease, mainly because their ACR20 numbers are under 40%. Um, so is it a mild disease drug or is it a drug that you just have low expectations for? No, I think you're right. I, I think you nailed it. Uh, some people do well. And you, that's what you get with, com, you know, the effect size is based on a composite of 100 people responding. So for 100 people, it may not work as well. But for individual patients, there um, I've seen some good responses. And I think that's what I've, I've heard from others as well, just in the skin and, and also in the joints and other aspects of disease. So uh, overall, the efficacy is modest. But for an individual person, uh, and I think that's why it's pretty popular. So uh, Tatiana Keck has a question about what Alexis was talking about, that maybe patients who just have pain in psoriasis, maybe fibromyalgia in psoriasis, might could evolve into psoriatic arthritis. I'm not buying I'm not buying into that at all. I'm not jumping on that bandwagon. I'm not doing serial follow-ups of, of the dermatologist-referred fibromyalgia patients. That's low, that's a low-yield thing. Now, you want to do it, that's a great idea. But Tatiana makes a suggestion, maybe you should do a bone scan. And maybe that would help you. But, I mean, so where do you, where do you stand on such patients? Is it just call a fibromyalgia and call me back when it's a, when it's a swollen joint? Or am I going to go to the nth degree to find out when they're going to evolve into psoriatic arthritis? Well, there's, there's more highly sensitive imaging to us. I um, MRI patients in difficult cases, not usually fibro, but, uh, if you, 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 somebody absolutely has OA, absolutely has psoriasis, their DIPs look a little bit red. Is this synovitis? Is there enthesitis? I look at an MRI or send them for an ultrasound, um, and, and ask that specific question. So I don't think it's unreasonable if the patient's willing to do something about it. If they say, yeah, my fingers bother me. I wish they were better. Uh, then highly sensitive imaging, I think, has a role. So I'll end with um, a case from clinic today. You'll never believe what I saw in the county hospital. Working with one of the fellows, she shows me this x-ray. And guess what? It's a pencil and cup deformity. Not just one, like a whole bunch of them. Oh. Honestly, how many how many real pencil and cup deformities have you seen? The only problem is this is a patient with lupus and lupus arthritis. So, what was the last pencil and cup deformity that you saw? Oh, it's it's there are some um, very chronic patients I have who I've had forever. 
who date their disease to beyond before the really the the most recent era of, of choices. And and you still see some of the classic deformities in them, but you're right, it, it's thankfully much less common. Uh, but and it was never pathognomonic of uh, the of psoriatic arthritis, just like the deform, the Z, uh, Z deformity of the thumb, which also represented just just complete obliteration of the surrounding surrounding structures and and a bunch of damage to it. So it's characteristic of it, but not pathognomonic. So. Uh, I, I hope you didn't change that patient's uh, diagnosis just based on the x-ray. No, I, I was trying to temper the enthusiasm to call it psoriatic arthritis just because it looks like the ACR teaching slide on uh, pencil and cup. So, <laughs> all right, that's it for this session of uh, Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Tune in next week. Um, we're going to have RA and lung. Jeff Sparks talking about ILD and RA, and I'll be talking about pneumonia risk in RA patients. Artie, thanks a lot for being here. Thanks to the audience for being here. Have a good evening, all. Happy Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you? Oh, my (laughs) goodness. All right.